Greetings. Welcome to In Conversation with Trevor, brought to you by Heart and Soul Broadcasting Services. I go beyond the headlines and beyond the sensational. Today I'm in conversation with Kenneth Radon Sharp, the Chief Executive Officer of Westprop. If you like this conversation, remember to subscribe, to like, and to share. Kenneth Radon Sharp. This is the first time I'm getting to know that your middle name is Radon, and I love middle names. Welcome to In Conversation with Trevor. Thank you, Trevor. It's really exciting to be on your show this morning on this beautiful rainy day in Harare. And Radon, where does Radon come from? It's a nice story. So you won't believe this either, but my great-great-grandfather invented the indecescent electric light bulb. Wow. So we have him to thank for the light that we're now receiving. Wow. And he invented it three months before Thomas Edison. He was a British man, scientist. And by default, he got into a laboratory experiment with some chemists that he, they killed themselves in an explosion. And he then inherited it. And he invented This is a true story. Oh, eh? yes, yes. You can Google it. Sir Joseph Swan is his name. And uh, he, through that laboratory, he invented bromide paper, which, of course, was photographic paper. But the bromide, bromide element is what he was able to put in a light bulb, create a vacuum, which allowed the light bulb to shine for many hours. And three months after he patented it in England, he discovered a gentleman called Thomas Edison had copied the same idea and patented it in America. So I don't he, believe you. It's true, it's true. He sued him. You know, it goes in the family suing in courts and so on. So he sued Thomas Edison and he won the case. And the judge gave him 50% of the American patent. So the two of them started the first light bulb company called Eddie Swan, Edison and Swan. And his son, Kenneth Radin, who I'm named after, uh, was Sir, he was knighted. They were both knighted by the Queen. And uh, he became the, 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 Queen's, the Queen Mother's legal counsel in England. So because of that, uh, his sister left to be married to my great-grandfather, a captain in the British Navy. Um, Hilda Swan was her name, and his name was Robert Sharp. And they were adventurous. Well, shall I rather say Robert was adventurous. She was a quieter lady and decided to take her to KwaZulu-Natal, the turn of the century. And that's where my grandfather was born, Noel Sharp, who became Dr. Noel Sharp. He was a geologist, a famous geologist in Africa. In fact, he got Tiny Roland into, into Lonra, which uh, was one of the biggest mining houses here. So because of that, in honor of my great uncle, I was given the name Kenneth Radin. My father's Kenneth Robert. Um, Kenneth is a family name, and Robert, of course, was our, grandf- our great-grandfather. Wow, what a pedigree, <laughs> Ken. Why have you kept this a secret? I, mean, I, don't, I'm a, I thought I was your you know, friend and I would know this stuff. I'm just a shy Zimbabwean boy from Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> Ken, let me take you to, um, if you still remember, you and I um, um, some time back in a bus mm. from Kigali oh, yes. to the Gorillas. Yes, that was a um, time. fascinating yes, journey that amazing. we had. But I think that's the first time that I met you. That's right. That's the first that's time right. that you, right. you struck me as an mm. interesting individual. You told us about how you came to know God mm. um, through a skiing accident in Canada in yeah. 2007. Yeah. 
Do you, as succinctly as possible, do you want us to, to walk us through that story? Sure. I mean, it's such a moving story. It's difficult for me to say it shortly, but I'll say this, that up until that point of the accident, I truly believed there was a God, but I didn't know him personally. I had no personal experience or testimony to believe he was real, but I thought there was something that existed out there. And when the accident happened, which uh, was the first time I'd been skiing at all, and on the fourth day of skiing, my private ski instructor said that I was good enough to go off-piste, which is almost unheard of. Off-piste is when you go in the powder, the snow is loose, and you need different skis, which I didn't have, and you need a completely different skill set. But for whatever reason, this adventurous Australian ski instructor said, let's go off-piste. My wife said, no thanks, I'll go in the other group. So skiing behind him off-piste, I took a turn, spun backwards and hit my head into a tree. And on impact, my brain was severed from my right ear to my lower jaw. 12.8 centimeters in length and six centimeters wide, the dura membrane that holds the brain to the skull was ripped apart. And the blood profusely bled, pushing my brain upwards from the base of my skull. Until over five hours, my brain was compressed three times and I was completely in a coma by then. I had to be rushed into Lionsgate Hospital and be given what's called a craniotomy, which is to cut through the skull. And they remove this amount of bone from the skull off the head, take out the blood, and then hope for the best. Because the brain had been compressed three times, they kept me in a comatized state for five days while the brain expanded It's a sponge. So the brain is a sponge that can expand back into the cavity. But the difficulty they told my wife was that on waking up, I would be a vegetable. They gave her a 2% chance of survival and said, if I woke up, I would have no memory, no faculties. She would have to take care of a vegetable for the rest of her life. And she was quite willing to do that. And it's interesting that a YPO actually came to my help, John Jennings, and um, met my wife in a traumatized state, obviously. His father was a priest, and he said to her, I've got someone who can help your husband. And he said, who's that? She said, who's that? She said, God. And she said, that guy doesn't listen to me. You know, I grew up as an atheist. And when my mom died a few months ago, I asked for his help, and he didn't save her. So he said, instead of asking God to save Ken, why don't you ask God to give you the strength to accept his will for Ken? And then he led her in prayer, and every day she would go to the chapel and pray, and she would told God, she, made a, she tells me she made a deal with God, that if he brought me back, she would read his book. And uh, sure enough, five days later, on waking up from this coma, instantly, in a flash, all my faculties were restored, and I could remember everything up until the point where I lost consciousness. So on the accident on the slope, I was, I, you know, I was knocked out completely unconscious for three minutes, knocked out cold. And uh, waking up, I, I realized there was something dramatically wrong. I didn't feel right. My skis were in the snow. I tried to get them, and the instructor said, no, no, let's get you evacuated. We called the medic. The medic came. They wanted to take me out on a, on a helicopter. And I said, no, I'm sure I can ski down. So I started skiing down with the medic. I got halfway down, and then my world was spinning around me. Literally, I couldn't stand. And he took one look at me and said, your right pupil is dilated. You have internal bleeding on the brain. We need to get you to the hospital. By the time I got to the local hospital, I was semi-conscious. An hour later, they would x-rayed me. There was no broken bones, not even a scratch on my body, but they knew there was internal bleeding. They put me in an ambulance and transported me to Vancouver to Lionsgate Hospital, which was about two hours. And in that ambulance, I died. I remember lying there staring at the ceiling like this, and all my faculties had gone. So the only thing I had left was sight. My sense of smell, hearing, taste had all gone. And it was a very terrifying moment because you realize how vulnerable you are how insignificant you are, that you're reduced to almost nothing. And you're no longer in control of your life. As much as I was an A-type personality and liked to control things, at that moment, I had absolutely no control. I saw people moving around me, almost shadows, 
they were getting desperate, obviously trying to resuscitate me and save my life. And at the time I passed out, they were about to put me on a ventilator. Um, I remember the lights dimming and going into a small little dot of light. And in those last moments, I said, if there's a God, please let me just see. That's the last thing I remember saying. And then when I woke up instantly restored, it, it, I couldn't understand what had happened to me. Literally, I felt a little bit different, more emotional. Uh, I, I hope that I'm a tough guy, but you know, I, I, was, I was weeping a lot. And people would, would write to me and say, we love you. We've been praying about you. I'd, I'd cry. I couldn't understand this. I thought maybe it's post-traumatic stress symptoms. Two days later, I checked myself out of hospital, discharged against doctor's orders. Was in the Western Vancouver Hotel on the Bayshore of, of Vancouver recuperating. And I walked out of the hotel to the square. How long were you in hospital for? So it was five days in a coma mm -hmm. and two days. When I woke up, I actually said I need to leave. And they said, mm -hmm. no, it's impossible. So after a few hours of persuasion, they said, if you pass the tests, we will let you leave. And then they gave me a physical After test. such a big surgery. Yeah. They were saying I need to be there for six months. Mm -hmm. Rehabilitation. I mean, they really expected epileptic fits. Mm -hmm. You know, um, absolutely no control over your, 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 your mental faculties and, and your memory should be completely gone. But everything was intact. So I, I proved it to them. I did the physical exercises and some mental tests, maths, English and so on. And eventually they discharged me against the doctor's recommendation. And I went to the hotel and walking in the Bayshore Square, I was contemplating why am I alive? What have I done to deserve this? I really felt like I had a second chance. And in that moment, I just felt God speak to me in my spirit almost like there was a second being inside me that was not myself. And it said to me, you're my son, I love you, and I've given you back your life for a purpose. Nothing will happen to you until you've done what you're supposed to do. And I just fell on my knees. I wept and wept, and I gave my life to God, not knowing if he was a Christian God, a Muslim God, a Hindu God, a Jewish God, but knowing that I had a father who loved me enough to give me back my life. And at that moment, I just dedicated myself to him. Anything he wanted me to do would mm. be an exact obedience. So prior to that, you had not given a, your, your, your life to God? Not really. I mean, my, my aunt, who, um, she's now 86. I saw her in Cape Town yesterday. Um, she's a great woman. This is my father's sister. She's a devout uh, Franciscan from the Catholic Church. Mm. Mm. She baptized me when I was a baby, mm. christened me. But other than that, so I guess I could be called a Christian, but I didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ or with God. I, I didn't really know who they were. Mm. And, and so, as far as you're concerned, what's been the biggest impact of this? The journey incident? for me has been, it doesn't really change who you are, because we're born who we are. We have inherent characteristics and talents and abilities. I think what it does is bring into focus what's the most important thing in your life. In those dying moments, I must say that the only thing that I thought of was the people that had been in my life that I was leaving behind and the experiences that I'd had. And in hindsight, if you look back through your life, the only two things you really take with you after mm. this life is the relationships you build mm. and the experiences you have. What was Ken like before that accident? Was he? Uh, I was uh, less trusting. I was more of a control freak. I didn't necessarily, I accepted there was a higher power, but I didn't necessarily accept that everything is preordained, that mm. you know, I thought it's more up to me to make it happen. Mm. And after that, I've become very peace um, within myself to know that, God is the one in control at the end of the day of everything. Mm -hmm. um, talk to me about you are you are a um, an entrepreneur. You you've built um, a big business. I want to. What's what? How do you deal with being a Christian in business? <laughs> what are your do's and don'ts? Yeah. 
as a result of I'm a, I'm a Christian. God has sent me on a mission. He has given me a second life for a purpose. That's a very deep, profound question. And I think there's three ways. The first one is first and foremost, how do I align my, let's say, pre-Christ principles, rules, value system to be aligned to what God would expect for me to do? Mm -hmm. And that's biblical. So it needs, it needs you to read the Bible, to study the scriptures and understand really what you can and can't do with God. Because I think obedience is one of the greatest things we have with God. You know, he says obedience is greater than sacrifice. So if we understand this is the framework, these are the rules. If I operate within those rules, then I'm being Christ-like. So I think that's the first thing. But the second thing, which is probably more important than the rules, is being led by the Spirit. And Christ himself said to the Jews, you know, they were complaining, why are you working on, on the Sabbath day? And I take the Sabbath very seriously. We don't buy anything. We don't go out. We really try and stay at home. We don't allow anyone to work for us anywhere on the Sabbath. But at the same time... Are you a Seventh Adventist? No, I'm a Latter-day Saint. Okay. Okay. Uh, but we follow the law of the Sabbath, keep it holy, you know, worship, don't do any work, mm. neither your man servant nor your, your, your visitors. So the question is, if we are aligned to God's law, how then do we live in God's spirit? And I think that's different because the spirit is alive within us. And Christ himself said, you know, if I save this ox on the Sabbath, I'm saving a life. So don't stop me. And I think that's the thing. Extremities are dangerous. You've got to be led by the spirit. And then the third thing in business, I, I feel that I am led by the Spirit and I'm unashamedly Christian. Every day I post a scripture, I read you version, which has now 580 million people on it. And um, I take that verse and then I interpret it into my own words and give a message of the day to, to my followers. And, I, and my family and friends, I have a group, like 200 people that I WhatsApp them to. And I feel like I'm bold. In, and if I don't do the scripture on the day, I really feel that I haven't done something today. Mm. So I put it out there every day and you can see from my platform that the messaging is probably 80% scripture and 20% business. But I believe first and foremost, we should be a light to the world, to shine. You know, a light is here to be seen by others so they can glorify God. So it's not about what I'm doing. It's about what he's doing through me. Mm -hmm. And the more I can communicate that message, the more people will see that it's not about ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's not about you, Trevor. It's not about me. It's about us all together. We're God's children. And if we work together to his glory, we will have so much more power than working on our own. Mm, mm, mm. Wow. I am reflecting on the words that you've shared. As, as I think of, um, as we started here, you actually said your great-grandfather, litigation, <laughs> um, runs in the family. You have been in court yes. quite a number of times. You... There's, there's um, controversy around some of the deals that you've done. Uh, some of your partners, um, I'm looking for Katsambiris, mm -hmm. uh, whatever, mm -hmm. the, that's, I think that is his George name. Kansabiris. George Katsambiris has, has described you in rather unflattering terms. Mm -hmm. um, he's called you a, a fraudster a crook and a thief. So I'm asking that question within the context of, here is a man who says he's serving God. He has got these business partners that he's been in business with who call him a fraudster, a crook and a thief. How do you square that up? Well, let me start with the spiritual side. And I'm no comparison whatsoever to our savior. 
uh, my Lord Jesus Christ. But he was called a thief and a fraudster and a liar. And he died. Mm. He was crucified on the cross. And he was judged incorrectly. But we know who he is today. Mm -hmm. And I'm not worried about what names I'm called. Fortunately, my father helped me to learn to have thick skin. My wife calls me an elephant. Um, I call myself the phoenix. But actually, I believe that it's not words that can harm me. And I have a greater purpose than just listening to the negative of a small part of our society. If I was to reflect on those words, of course, they're hurtful. I'm a human being. And when you're accused of something you haven't done, it's very painful. And it takes sometimes a very long time to prove who you are. Sometimes it takes more than your lifetime, as we've seen with many martyrs that have come before us. And hopefully in my lifetime, I'm not martyred, but I have been vindicated. Let me take you back a step. If you remember the history, I was called a spy from Russia. I think one article said, you know, from Russia with love. Um, and I was accused of being an aspiring, money laundering, a whole lot of things. That was the first time I had exposure to, to the press. And it was not a pleasant experience. It was a very negative experience. The headlines were very sensationalistic. And I actually went to do a polygraph because I was accused of all kinds of terrible things. To prove my innocence, I sent it to the Americans, to the MI6. And um, it took about a year for the, the British to come to see me. In fact, Jan Harari, a gentleman in a straw hat one day, called me up and met me at a cafe reading a newspaper. And he said, don't worry, Mr. Sharp. We know you're too far out of the woods for the KGB. And there's no problem with you. You've got family in the UK. We know who you are. You're welcome back. Uh, it was within a year that I had dinner in the Queen's uh, Palace with her. And I went to 10 Downing Street to meet uh, the Prime Minister. So I do know that these things are thrown at me and I've been thrown in the deep end and I've learned that as our beloved uh, African hero Madiba Nelson Mandela would say, don't judge me by the number of times that I fall down, but rather by the number of times that I get up again. And George Katsimbiris is one of those few. Um, there have been others who have said worse, worse things, but I, I understand who I am. I'm comfortable in my skin. I know my innocence. I was called uh, uh, um, uh, someone who's avoiding justice. What do you call it? Not a refugee. Mm. Hey, yeah, um, I'll think of the word as we go on. So I've been in the country five times mm. this year. Um, I come back every year home, at least for a couple of weeks. Uh, I don't have any problems with the law. Yes, I have court cases. My company had 36 court cases two years ago. A lot of them caused by George Katzenberis. Today we have 16. So we've won 20 court cases. Every single one, either been acquitted or one in high court and Supreme Court. And I asked the question, if I had done something wrong, how could the courts have cleared me so many times? Is it possible that uh, Ken Sharp, with his wealth, buys the prosecutors, buys the judiciary? Have you thought of that? Well, I'm, I'm sure it's, uh, it's come to people's minds. But to buy 20 different court forums, 20 different judges and prosecutors, mm. How many in the Supreme Court? I think there's a panel of three or four or more. It's not possible. Mm. Um, it, it's really a case of, I think with, with anything in life that's significant, there's going to be noise. There's a saying, you know, the wind blows strongest with the tallest trees. Mm. And we did a big deal with government. It was not a very easy deal. 
on the airport road highway. Before you go there, we, 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 we're, going, we're going to go there. Um, I, I thought, let me, let me share with you that I, I, I feel your pain in terms of um, the, the allegations. So I've been called a CIA spy. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I've, been, I've been called uh, the running dog of uh, imperialists. <laughs> I've been told, um, accused of supporting uh, Emerson Nagago. I have been accused of hating Nelson Chamisa with a passion. I have uh, been called a tribalist. Um, it, it does hurt sometimes. Um, how do you go on living with people that you've worked with, like George, calling you the names that they call you? Talk to me through that. You know, that's an extremely important question because it's, it's a question of what is important to you. What do you want to focus on? Because it is what you become. What you focus on is what you become. I prefer to focus on where I'm going and I'm focused on the next at least 20 to 30 years of my business life. I would like to believe I'm turning 50 in two months time, but I'd like to believe I'm not even halfway through. Young my man, young man. <laughs> Tis okay. you. So, so when, we, when we look at this, the scale of time and where we're going, those things that are happening right now, which seem to be really important and frustrating and emotional, in the test of time, they mean very little. And over a decade, over two decades, those things, you know, go away. And I've learned that in my life, that if you stay focused on where you're going and what you're trying to achieve, then the noise around you now is not so important. I often refer to the lioness in, in our African uh, scenario of, of the bush hunt, where the lioness chases her target, she focuses, she chooses one of them, and then she focuses on that target. And she never lets her eyes off that target until she either kills it or loses it. There may be other prey right here in front of her, but she doesn't touch it. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? How are you able to do that? What are the habits that make you do that? Because that's hugely important. Mm. Uh, I identify a lot with what you're saying. You know, you, 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 the temptation to do otherwise is pretty strong. How do you hold yourself from? I, th- I think the first thing, Trevor, is, is your faith. Whatever your faith is, I think you have to have a faith system. You have to know that God is with you because sometimes these things are much bigger than you. And with God, he says, with man, things are impossible, but with him, it's all possible. And I've seen miracles in my life every day of my life that I cannot attribute to anything I've done, but that really come from God. Mm. So the first thing is having faith. The second thing is being disciplined. I'm sure you've heard of the marshmallow experiment in a famous American university in the 70s, where they put a marshmallow in front of a kid and said, wait, you know, 10 minutes and you can get a second marshmallow. And then they followed the kids that waited throughout their life. So it's about having that restraint, the spirit of restraint, and that requires a lot of discipline. Um, And with discipline comes a healthy way of life. So getting up early in the morning, exercising, eating right, um, working enough but not too much, resting enough. These things are very basic things, but they really do help you to become a strong person because I think our body is not just physical. We have a metaphysical body, which mm-hmm. is spiritual, physical, and emotional. And all of those things have to be in balance. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about your, your daily habits. What, what do you do? Because I'm interested in that because we're going to get to uh, the airport road <laughs> and billions of dollars. But I want, I want you to take us to what's your day like for, to give you that uh, clarity. Uh, the, the, because the example that you give of a lion chasing a, um, uh, a prey 
is, is an important one. The distraction is there. You could go for that one or go for that one or, you know, do something else. What's your, what are your daily habits like? So I think it's, for me, it's not about being dogmatic in the sense that I feel it's a ritual. If I get up at six in the morning, I have to, you know, mm. do X, Y, Z before breakfast. I mm. think for me, it's more of um, a feeling. And I'm on the road a lot. As I mentioned, I've been in 80 countries in the last five years, over 200 cities. In the last seven years, over 100 countries, 300 cities. And it's difficult to maintain with different time zones, different places you're staying. It's difficult to maintain a routine. So when I'm at home here, it's easier, of course. I have a more daily routine. But it's more about how I'm feeling in my body. And there's certain rules that I keep to myself. Have I done my scripture study today? Mm. Have I said my prayers today? I pray at least five times a day. Have I done exercise today? And even if it's and my basic exercise routine would be a simple routine of stretches that were developed by the Himalayan monks about 2,000 years ago uh, that really helped me to feel energized, strong, fit. I'm not overweight. I rode a bicycle. You, you're time. looking good, man. What do you mean you're not overweight? <laughs> mm-hmm. I rode a bicycle the last time three and a half years ago. I'm a keen cyclist, a road cyclist. I've done the Cape Town August 2 in less than three hours, which they tell me is like a professional time. And I got back on the bicycle this last Sunday with a friend in Cape Town for the first time. And I was able to ride 62 kilometers up uh, chappies and all that. And I felt fine with it. So I think I'm relatively fit for a, you know, a young 50-year-old, as you say. But then, of course, so it's, it's daily fitness. And then it's, 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 it's food. It's what do I eat. And I've learned in the last 10 years how to fast. Part of the, the, the faith that I belong to is we fast every month, compulsory kind of worldwide fast. Uh, first Sunday of every month, everyone fasts for 24 hours and gives the money to the bishop to buy food for the poor. And through that fasting, I discovered that longer fasts work better for me. So if I fast for three days or five days, I feel more in tune with the spirit. And I start to see something happen in my body, which wasn't there before. So I researched it and your telomeres, which is the things that make you young and your body get extended during fasting. So things like intermittent fasting, I'm a firm believer of. I fast normally 16 hours a day, sometimes 18 hours a day. And that's a complete fast. So you don't eat or drink anything during that time. Um, and I believe these are the things that have helped me to stay on top of it. Imagine getting free access to the Newsday, the Standard, the Zimbabwe Independent, and the Weekly Digest for a full month. Well, you can, and all you need to do is download the Newsday e-reader app on Google Play Store or scan the Newsday QR code in any of the AMH print publications and start enjoying the quality content. So, like you, I'm a practicing Christian, born-again Christian. And like you, the Spirit plays a big role in my life. The first time that I got in touch with you to talk to you on this program, I think actually cancelled last minute because the Spirit said to me, not now. And I said to my wife, I don't know what's happening, but the Spirit does not want me to do this conversation. When you got in touch a week ago and you said, what's happened? I didn't feel the resistance. Mm -hmm. What do you say? I think there's a perfect time for everything. 
One of my favorite quotes is from Victor Hugo, French poet, novelist. And he says, there's nothing as powerful as an idea whose time has come. Mm. And there's another saying I'll, I'll give you from Hillel. And I didn't know about this Jewish philosopher until I went to uh, a friend and in, in, uh, another white friend actually in Jakarta about uh, 13 years ago. And I was at his house and, and uh, this Jewish man approached me and we started talking and he said, what are you still doing in Zimbabwe? A guy like you, you know, you can do anything. You can be anywhere in the world. So I said to him, if not me, then who? And if not now, then when? And he said, you know, that's what Hillel said. <laughs> so I had no idea who Hillel was. But I look back at it and definitely mm. I think, you know, it's, it's about doing the right things at the right time. Mm. So the, the, a lot of people out there might not know this because I think this is, this is the first time I'm saying this is I cannot sit here with somebody there that my spirit does not want me to talk to. Mm -hmm. And um, people say to me, how do you guys choose people to come to the show? I listen to the spirit. I pray. And the impact after the conversation is amazing. Uh, I have no control over that. And I say to spirit, spirit lead. So let the spirit lead us now mm -hmm. as you and I get into real serious heavy lifting. So you, you, you get the contract for the airport rod. Right. There's not been a tender that's gone out, mm -hmm. but you are selected to do this. How does this sit with you? you? There's not been competition. There should be competition. This is taxpayers' money. Talk to me about that. Let's take a journey back in time. 2007, 2008 was the time we negotiated this deal. And you'll remember that was a terrible time of our economic history of Zimbabwe. Hyperinflation had reached its roof. Dollars were depreciating by the second. And my Ukrainian partner, Alexander Shermet, had said to me, you know, you've done well in business, but there's got to be a good land opportunity in Zimbabwe. Properties are extremely cheap. The currency is depreciating. We should buy land together. So when we looked at who owns the majority of land, it was the city of Harare. So we went to our custodians. And at this stage, Trevor, I didn't know anyone in government. Really, I didn't. No, I didn't, I didn't meet the, any minister or, or the president. or I hadn't even met the town clerk. So we went to the city of Harare and we met the management, Philip Fukwa, the engineer, the director of town planning. And we said, look, this is what we want to do. We want to buy land from you guys. So eventually they said, no, look, we, we've done a deal with Philip Changwa for changing land for, for, for vehicles. It didn't work for us. And we can't sell it to you in Zim dollars because by the time the ink dries, it will be worth nothing. So why don't we put the land into a joint venture? You guys have got the money. Put money into the joint venture and you have the skill and expertise and develop the land. So we said, that's a good idea. Let's do that. So then we formulated an, MO, an MOU. Um, and when it got to signing the MOA, and that's the first time I met the town clerk was at the MOU, actually. And by the time to, it got to, after negotiating the different parcels, it got to signing the MOA, I hadn't even met the, the chairperson of the council, which was engineer Michael Mahachi. And I remember sitting with my partner, Sasha, the Ukrainian, a couple of the city of Rory um, lawyers and, and staff around the, the table. And I was wondering why the mayor hadn't come in the room, or the chairperson. And they were saying he won't come in until we finalize the agreement. So we would make changes, send them to his room. He would make changes and send them back. So by the time we actually met him, we had agreed on the terms and we signed. And that's a genuine story. It took about three or four months of working with them. Things like, for example, they would phone us and say, in Chinoy, there's been an accident. We have no uh, fuel to put in the, 
in the ambulances. We would donate 30,000 liters of fuel to the city. Uh, we don't have theodolites, the land that you want us to put in the joint venture. We can't survey it because we don't have the equipment. So we bought the theodolites. They didn't have computers. We bought computers. So we would. So you're buying those things as a partner in Sunshine Development. Yes, is that, yes, is that exactly. So the, the deal was 30% city in Sunshine 70% Development. 70% you. 70% us. 70% Ogo. Is it Ogo? It's 70% Ogo. Okay. Which is a Mauritian company. Mm-hmm. And then because we had access to foreign currency, the country had nothing. They were kind of calling on us as the partner, help us with this, help mm, us with that. Mm. Um, so we did favors for the city. And, you know, over time... But you're obviously totaling these favors. Yes, on their loan okay, account, of course. Yeah, it's going okay, on their loan yeah. account. So we, we're not getting... And what's the connection between that? Because I want us to fast forward to the, the, road. the airport road. Yes. What's the so that, that's what happens. So three months later, they say, you know, we can see the joint venture is going to work. The land wasn't zoned, so they had to rezone the land. And by the way, Warren Hills, which is part of the land... We are now 15 years later, still hasn't been rezoned. The change of use, which they recommend to the minister, hasn't been done. And we'll come back to that. But anyway, the, we got busy and they said, fine, can you build this road for us in the joint venture? We need to extend the airport road from Brayside to the, to the, you know, the postal center behind Macro there. It's about five or $6 million. So we said, fine, you know, lo- we, we're supposed to fund the company with $7 million. We can do that. Um, we look at the road, we do the planning, it goes to the parent minister. That's when we got to meet, uh, 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 Dr. Ignatius Jumbo. Mm-hmm. It went to him. He said, let me take it to cabinet. They took it to cabinet, took it to the president. Our team made presentations to the president and the president said, no ways. If they build this road, they must build a brand new highway, not an extension, a small. The president is, uh, Robert Mugabe. Robert Mugabe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they must build a, a brand new road. Minister of Transport got involved and they looked at the whole road mm-hmm. from the airport to downtown as a project. And I'll give you an example of why I believe this was godly intervention. I had no experience in building roads whatsoever. I'd never built a road in my life. But I had a friend in South Africa. His name was Graham Power. Unfortunately, he died this year. And Graham has been building roads for 40 years. So I phoned Graham and I said, Graham, we've got an opportunity to build this road, but I know nothing about it. Can you come up and see how you can help us? So he came up, he brought his whole team. They did a complete calculation of the cost of building that road. Prior to that, I'd signed an agreement estimating the road cost would be $80 million. Don't ask me where I got that number from because I really got it out of the sky. When he did the costing, it came to $78 million. When we calculated the land that we had to be paid, there was not enough land to, to, to pay for the $78 million. The government had small pieces, they had Millennium Park. We valued the land, we agreed on the value. And then we said for all the work that we do, dollar for dollar, they would transfer land to us. So as we completed the works on the road, they would transfer us more land. And when we got to spending about $22 million, there was no more land. So we stopped working. And that was really the biggest problem on the road, as well as the fact that the land they gave to us wasn't zoned. So we were very um, cautious And we took a huge risk of receiving land that was not yet approved for development. So that kind of give and take is what took the road so long to finish. Hmm. So you you, you were uncomfortable, the land wasn't zoned. Yes. That's an interesting point. Why were you not uncomfortable that this deal had not gone to tender? Did you not think that a tender, a competitive bid was important? At that time, there was no one in the country willing to do anything. We're talking of 2008. There was no tenders to be talked about. The tender board hadn't been set up. Mm. I didn't know anything about tenders. 
you know, my experience was not working in government or working in triple P's. The, what we did do, though, is got good advice. So we went to our lawyers and we got written legal advice. We went to our accountants and got written accounting financial advice. And the advice that came from the professionals was this was kosher, it was above board, it was legal, and it would stand the test of time. Who am I to question government if they want to award a contract to me through a tender or directly, you know? I, I would not have had any idea at that time. Are you not Ken Sharp? I am, son I am. Of God, <laughs> I am. The son of God who the Holy Spirit speaks to and say, this is not right, I shouldn't do this. It was right, Trevor. It is right. The deal was right from the day one, because number one, we didn't pay one cent in a bribe to anyone. Number two, we didn't incentivize anyone in government from the top to make this deal work. It was truly from the bottom up. We worked with lower levels of government and it raised its way up. And number three, everything I do, did, I did with the backup of professionals. From the advice that we got to the costing of the road. It's not us who put those costs. We invited an independent South African builder to come and do a full quantity survey a cost exercise, so that what we charged the government would be based on their cost, not on our cost. And two questions. What's the status of the road now? Is it complete? No, no. What's, what's so, so the biggest thing on that road, the saddest thing, is that the biggest cost of the road, of the $80 million, probably 50 to $60 million is actually bridges, which were never built. Hmm. So the bridge that, and the road wasn't completed to its destination. We extended and expanded the existing road, which is from the posting center to the airport. But from the posting center to downtown, to Robert Mugabe Road, there's a flay, the Mukawizi flay. And there's a span of about two kilometers that a bridge needs to be built over the flay so the airport highway can go straight into town because now it's diverting. So, of course, until government finds the funding, which I'm sure they will eventually find, that road needs to be built and finished. By who? I guess... Now there's tender. Mm. I guess it will go to tender. Mm. Um, I'm guessing that the best bidder will win and complete the road. What 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 tab is is the taxpayer have, has had to, to to carry for for the work that you've done for the cost of the road? Well, the right taxpayers now? paid nothing. We took money out of our pockets and built the road. Uh, we were given land that wasn't zoned. That was an eyesore. Warren Hills is still a dump site. If you go there now, there's there's litter at the top of the hill in Warren Hills. Millennium Park was an eyesore. With uh, have you lost money on the deal? No, of course not. No. Okay, no. so you've got, you got some land. Yes, we got land. We, we got, got paid land. well. Mm. Uh, it took a long time to get compensated. You got paid well? How much did you get paid? So we got, for the work that we did, the 22 million, mm -hmm. we got 22 million of land, mm -hmm. which is Millennium Park that we're developing in Borrowdale and a little bit of Gun Hill. Mm -hmm. That was essentially the two pieces of land that mm -hmm. was worth 22 million. Mm -hmm. And then we got an additional uh, piece of land in Pomona, which is 270 hectares, mm -hmm. which is another $20 million. Mm -hmm. So Warren Hills... Um, there's controversy there around it's not been zoned, mm -hmm. it's a golf club, mm -hmm. um, processes have, have not taken place. What's your response to those allegations? You know, it's really disappointing that as a triple P, a public-private partner with the city of Harare, we've got a council who's in opposition who's supposed to be showcasing what they're doing for the city. But what have they actually done? Can you show me? And there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of accusations. Things have been thrown out there. I heard about the, the stadium uh, being not done now. Someone, you know, the businessman involved pulling out. All these things that are happening are negative. But what positives are happening in the city? If you look at national government, I can see development. Mm -hmm. we, have a, we have a new city being built. We have highways being built. 
But what is the city doing? So what's the, what's and the city as our partner, doing as far as uh, Warren Well, this is the problem, that they are a partner. And in the agreement, they're supposed to zone, provide the permits, and facilitate the government requirements in terms of licensing. So when we applied for the permission for this golf course, in fact, it was the first project before the airport highway. We went to launch the golf course with Arthur Mutambara, the deputy prime minister, uh, Minister Tapiwa Machikari, who was in the opposition mm. government. He, he was part of the GNU. Uh, and and uh, and uh, Dr. Chamba, the, the Minister of Local Government, the three of them were at the launch. We launched the project. We brought architects from South Africa. We spent $300,000 on the planning. We brought bricks, a million bricks on site, and we wanted to start building. And they said, you cannot build because one, the change of use hasn't been done. And two, the Emma hasn't finalized the wetlands. So it took almost 10 years for Emma to finalize the wetlands, which they then finalized. And by the time we went back to the city of Rari three years ago, they'd lost our application for change of use. So we reapplied. It went through the technical committees. So the committee that approves development is called the EMC, mm-hmm. Environmental Management Committee. And this committee approved at a technical level the project. Not once, but seven times, Trevor. It's unprecedented that in the city's history, a project has been recommended to council several, seven times, and yet council sent it back seven times. Well, how do you explain that? Well, the, the, the city is made up of technocrats um, and, of course, politicians. The technocrats are, uh, are appointed contractually to run the city and the politicians rule council. So every decision that's made by the technical committee has a member of a, a political member, councillor on the committee. So that EMC would have members of both the political and the bureaucratic or the technocratic uh, team. They then approve it, and it goes every month to a main council meeting. And then in main council, they approve all the projects. Mm. So I'll give you an example. The first one that went there in May had 72 items on the list. 71 were approved. Ours was not. Why? Is somebody asking for a bribe and you haven't paid? There is that. There is that? Yes, there is. There is that. Are you able to name that person here? I would not like to do that. But, but there is a person. But there is a person. A there is a person, and it's and it's been unfortunate to hear that name several times. And I've decided that I will not do that. I would rather wait. If it takes seven times or seven more times, it doesn't matter. The whole ludicrous thing is that the council doesn't approve the change of use. It's actually the minister. All council does is recommend to the minister to approve. Mm-hmm. So I could have shortcutted and gone straight to the minister, because this is a national project. But I've been waiting patiently for the council. In fact, they're meeting today, Trevor. Let's see what happens. It's in God's hands. So can you you say you've been in court 26 times? 36. 36 times. And you have 16 of those cases alive now. Mm-hmm. The others you've, you've won. Yes. Of those remaining, mm-hmm. which ones are big and what are they all about? You know, without boring everyone with the details of listing them, essentially the big tiff is still over this George Katsambiris guy. Is that the Pomona thing? No. So what happened was... And George Katsambiris used to be your partner. No, no, no. no. Never, never my partner. He, he, he was the guy who built, built. the he, road. No, no, no. 
So George came to me about five years ago and said he has a technology to build houses in one month. He can build a complete house. Um, and the technology is similar to the American frame. You know, in America, they use yeah. timber frames. Yeah. So his technology was light uh, gauge steel that's cut in a mm. factory, delivered to site, and then assembled into a house. Mm. And then instead of putting bricks on the walls, they put mesh and plaster the mesh. So structurally, it can stand, but our standards in Zimbabwe are the British standards. Mm. And unfortunately, they don't allow that type of construction. Mm. So what are you fighting over with George? So there was a piece of land where he had... Um, Which piece of land is this? Sorry this is to... Pokogara, okay. where we have okay. homes in All Pokogara. Right. There was a piece of land with 21 townhouses planned that he said, I will build six equivalent to the value of the land and we'll do a 50-50. So he puts in the money to build the six. I put in the land. He builds the six. We sell the six and then we reinvest the money to build out the 21 and the profits we share. So it sounded good. And to me, if I, and he promised that I would get the cost of the house for less than what it would cost me traditionally and that he would handle the permits. So it starts. Two years later, he hasn't finished one house out of the six. So on advice of the lawyers, I met him. We didn't un understand each other. There was no uh, way to move forward. We canceled the agreement through our lawyers. Um, he then didn't like the cancellation. At the same time we canceled, we went to the city and said, we have this house on our land. It's, it's not us who built it. We now need to build using bricks. He has the new plans to approve the, the architectural plans using bricks. We got two architects to design it locally. They then said the plans are not genuine for the house. You must demolish the house. So we said, well, he gave us a stamp plan. Mm. They said, we know nothing about that. It's not in our records. They wrote a letter to us to demolish the house. Mm. We extended to try and get time to talk to him. Unfortunately, George had a stroke. He had, his wife left the country with his children. He went through many challenges. And uh, ultimately, we had to demolish the house some two months later. He then rushed to court to get an urgent um, injunction to stop us demolishing the house. The court found it not urgent, dismissed it. He appealed in Supreme Court. He lost. And it then went to trial uh, on the normal role. At trial, the city of Harare officials, the town clerk, the city planner, they came and testified under oath that the plans were not done in the right manner. They didn't follow the circulations. They didn't have approval. They were illegal and that we followed the law by demolishing the house. We won that case. He then went to report Mike Van Bloek to the police for um, fraud. And the magistrate's court took about a year to hold the case. Mike was found not guilty. Mike was our, C our CEO, MD at the time. And um, he then went and made two more cases, three more cases, one for perjury, one for malicious damages and one for something else to the, to the courts. In the meantime, we'd also reported him for fraud that these, these plans that he'd produced to us were not genuine and it should be investigated. Unknown to us, a certain individual called Roy Nyaburi who worked for the city, who had stamped the plans, had been dismissed from the city of Ferrari. I only got to discover this about two years ago. So three years into this, I saw the minutes of an investigative committee um, looking at the city of Ferrari dealings which was comprised of about 40 individuals, technocrats and, and councillors, where they found uh, Ronyaburi guilty of abuse of office and dismissed him and reported it to the police. He was never arrested. The case was never investigated. 
So we resuscitated that case. He's been arrested. He's in, he's in jail. And um, I believe the courts will speak for themselves. Mm. You know? So with George, you, you're still fighting. You're still in court. We are. The okay. majority of the cases relate to the, the civil cases around George and the criminal cases around George. Mm. And, and, and the, the, there's something that doesn't sit with me well, but you explained this. So there's the issue of um, wetlands as far as Warren Hills is concerned. Yes. And I, I want you to, give, to share with us what your justification is on working on wetlands. So there's mm -hmm. an issue with, um, uh, which other one? Millennium Park? Millennium. There's a problem Borodil. there Borodil. that it's Borodil, that mm -hmm. it's also uh, is sitting on a, on a yeah. wetland. How do you justify working on our wetlands? I don't think okay. I would like to justify working on a wetland, but I'll frame it in this way, that wetlands are not um, impossible to build on. Let's look at Dubai. In the middle of the sea, which is an ideal wetland because it's completely wet. To be defined a wetland, by the way, it should be wet. There should be water on it. Our wetlands are perennial and seasonal. Uh, they're not wet all throughout the year. But they are still technically a wetland. So if you look at Dubai, buildings are built in the middle of the water. Land is reclaimed from the sea and built on. So it's not that it's impossible to build on a wetland. Sure, sure. It's very but, possible. But the, the, what about the issue of this is where... We, we get our water. This, yes. is, this is a right, breathing let's, space. Let's for, go to that. Why, the why catchment you, area. Yeah, catchment area. The catchment area is a fallacy. The city of Rari itself was a giant wetland before the settlers came. And the way the city was built was the wrong location. If you look at hills where cities are normally built, we're not on a hill. So the whole city's catchment area has been eroded. In downtown, we have a river that flows underneath the buildings to this day. A huge river. So, so you do. So the buildings in the city center are mm. built on a wetland. We have what's left of the wetland. Let's call it the Borodel Flay, which is where we're building. The core of that wetland is what we disputed with Emma in court. It went to the Supreme Court twice. We won twice. It, it, it remained for a long time like that because it was, I remember when we were at the University of Zimbabwe, it was empty. It was yes. a wetland. Yes. It, it actually, um, it was a swamp um, when, it was. It, when it rained. It was. So, so what's mean, happened over the years? So let me talk to you now yeah. as a Christian brother. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, shouldn't you be saying, give me another piece of land and let this land, which is, uh, uh, what term did you use? Which, um, uh, where water collects and so forth. Give me another piece of land. You're saying this is wetland. I'm not going to fight over this. Give me another piece of land. Mm -hmm. Is that not a, a way of looking at it? Or I'm a naive Christian? No, I think it's, it's good what you're saying. It's altruistic. But to assume that the wetland in Borodel Flay is enough to provide water for everyone is a miscalculation on a grand scale. But do you concede it's a wetland? It was a functional wetland. It's a dysfunctional wetland today. What I do concede is that it could be functional. And what do I mean by that? I mean that if there's a responsible developer, and we've taken on that role, we've agreed with Emma, there's an environmental management plan as part of our EIA, that will rehabilitate the wetland, mm -hmm. that will recreate the wet land that's supposed to be there. So the water that is missing, and the reason the water is missing, Trevor, is because of the boreholes. So you take the city itself to supply water. Mm -hmm. If they had supplied water to the residents, we would still have a wetland, a functioning wetland. The reason for the wetland not to function is that people have drilled boreholes. And I can tell you the truth. In my house, I drilled a borehole 15 years ago. I hit water 25 meters. Last month, I had to drill to 90 meters. 
to hit water. So the water table has gone down. Sure. That's because everyone sucked water mm. out of the boreholes. Mm. That water is not being sucked from Bird or Flay. Mm. It's being sucked from the whole of Harare. So in your view... But let me just finish this sure, point. Sure, sure. We absolutely. calculated the water mm. on Bird mm. or Flay. Mm. How many homes do you think it can feed? No idea. 600. Mm. The water in Bird or Flay is enough to give water to 600 homes. So you're asking me a good question. Is it justifiable for me as a developer to not develop there on that uh, Millennium Flay, to not rehabilitate the wetland, to preserve water for 600 homes? Or is it better for me to allow development of 400 million US dollars whilst protecting the wetland core, keeping 50 hectares you as do, a functional you do wetland? That, is it? We're going to create Hyde Park in Harare, the biggest and most beautiful park with a wetland, with a lake on it. Mm. With fauna and flora, naturally, that should be there. Mm. How do you explain the opposition that you're you're facing from? Um, <sighs> it's it's unfortunate. From from you 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 there is opposition from what I'm reading from uh, residents and from the city council itself. Let's deal with residents. What's okay. your what's your pushback so, to what the residents are saying? The the residents tried to challenge our permit, the border residents, in court. Um, and they lost. The reason they challenged the, the, the development was not because they didn't want the development. Although there's an element of society where we're building in Millennium Heights, for example, now, it's on the border of Dandara. Mm. So I must ask you this question, putting your hand on your heart. Can 560 white residents in Dandara be allowed to have homes and 1,000 black residents that I'm putting in my flats not have homes when they're bordering each other on the same piece of land? Because the very wetland that you're talking about, the very flay, is underneath Dandara. They built on it. And they had a permit and I have a permit. So what's happening? So what's happening is bigger than that. Um, and, and, I, and I don't like to say this, but I will. Tendai Beatty took on a client called George Katsimiris. Tendai Beatty is a leader in the country. He's the vice president of the opposition party. And unfortunately, that has escalated the situation. Because in one of the court hearings, outside court, he had an altercation with my sister-in-law where he swore at her and humiliated her and insulted her and verbally abused her, which is unacceptable of any man to do such a thing to a woman, let alone a lawyer, let alone a man who's supposed to be a national leader of this country. So because of that, the politics that are behind him and the forces that are behind the council support his narrative. Hmm. And that's really what we're facing. Wow. The uh, Pomona, and explain, as far as Pomona is concerned, is it true that you got immunity of prosecution? <laughs> uh, I don't know where that comes from. What happened but in the... Did you, you, you're aware of that allegation that you... Oh, yes, I've seen the, I've seen okay. the comments from, from Tendai Beatty. The thing is not about immunity because I don't know if it's unfortunate that we're discussing Tendai B and he's not here. It would be great I'll, to have absolutely. him. I would welcome another opportunity. Please invite him. <laughs> yeah. I'll be glad to have the, the conversation. I will reach out to him. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the allegation is, yes, um, I have immunity. And somehow the whole country uh, has granted me some kind of blanket immunity, which I don't even think exists in our law, mm -hmm. to be honest with you. But what did happen was the settlement agreement with government. And in that settlement agreement three years ago, parties, us and them, withdrew all cases, both civil and, and uh, criminal. So those cases were set aside and withdrawn. 
And in that, I guess there is some immunity from those cases because the party settled. They reached mm. a compromise. Mm. But immunity from anything else, it's impossible. Is, is, is Mark Van Black still with you? He retired. Okay. Uh, Mike re- retired at the end of 2018, mm. before all of this happened. Mm. And um, unfortunately, he had to be called back from his retirement mm. to deal with the, the court cases. Mm. Now look me straight in the eye and answer this question. Have you ever paid a bribe? to any city council person, any government person? I've never paid any bribes to city officials, no. Ignatius Chombo, no bribe to Ignatius Chombo? No, I mean, the whole thing with Ignatius Chombo was, he was, t- he was um, accused, I guess, that he was my partner, that I had done this deal together with him. That was the narrative going around. I don't think I've seen Ignatius Chombo in the last five years once. He was never your partner. He was never my partner. He never benefited from this deal. This deal was done without him, Trevor. Mm -hmm. As I said to you, we went from the city of Roy lower levels. Eventually, we reached his office and I had to work with him. And I did work with him. He was the minister of local government. And I did meet the president, Robert Mugabe, several times. He was the president of Zimbabwe. I have met... But none of these people were partners in your No, and this is the point I'm making. I have met... Uh, President Emerson Wanangagwa. He is the president of the country. But when I meet these individuals, I'm not meeting them as individuals. I'm meeting them as holders of public offices. Mm. So I dealt with his office, the ministry, or the president as his office as the president. Mm. I didn't necessarily deal with them. They were not my personal friends. They were not my business partners. Mm. We were doing something that we believed was good for the country. I believe I'm doing something that's good for the country. Mm. And I'm not ashamed to meet the president of Zimbabwe. I'm not ashamed to meet the minister of local government. In fact, I'm opening our block two in Millennium, where we had this uh, argument in, in Dandara um, and the residents. We've finished block two. We've put 100 residents into flats. We're building block three, which is another 112. And on Friday, I'm handing it over to the residents. And mm. I have three ministers there. Minister Garway, the minister of housing is there. Uh, Minister, uh, Deputy Minister uh, Chombo is there from local government and the Permanent Secretary of uh, local government is there. Mm. So I have uh, government officials there that I'm not embarrassed to be there. I'm, I'm proud to be able to speak to government. I'm proud to be able to represent my company to government. Why should I be ashamed to go and speak to a minister or, or the president? Mm. Mm. And with all clear conscience, is that what, you, what you're saying? With all these allegations hanging around you, you're doing this with a clear conscience that you haven't done anything wrong? Absolutely. Mm. I believe 100% that what I'm doing is the right thing for Zimbabwe. Mm. You dropped out of school. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> at, at 17. Yes. And um, you started working at 18. Actually at 17. At 17. Yeah. And, and, and talk to me about why did you drop out of school? So um, <laughs> I had an unpleasant experience at school. Um, my family was broken. My parents got divorced. We, we lived in Bulawayo when I was a, a primary school student. And then we moved to Harare. I went to boarding school at um, Borodal Primary. And then at senior school, I went to Peterhouse. And uh, I was, I guess, the odd one out. The unpopular kid. I didn't play sports. I didn't get on with all the guys. I only had one friend. Um, one of the, and I ended up getting into trouble. The first, I think, two years, I was very quiet and timid. And then I started to do some sport rowing and got a bit bigger, physically stronger. 
And by the time I was in Form 3, I just decided I wouldn't take any more nonsense from anyone. And I had a bit of a, a violent streak, uh, I must admit, Trevor, in me. And there was an occasion where a friend of mine who was in the same study, um, Richard Kershaw, was, was uh, insulting me, calling me a kaffir lover. Uh, because I had a friend, a good friend, Masima, Masimba Rishwaya, who was like a best friend to me, a brother. And I didn't see things in black and white. I still don't see things in black and white. I say my blood is red as yours. And it both bleeds. We both bleed for our soil. So skin color is not something that I've ever had a prejudice with. But when he said that to me, I just saw red and went crazy. And I really, I locked the door and beat him up. And uh, eventually the, the prefix broke the door. And um, Am I safe here? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, God found me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you got, you got kicked out of school. So I got expelled. I got mm. uh, caned for doing that mm. six and suspended mm. and... I eventually left and went to England. My father was not happy with me. So he sent me on a one-way ticket to England with a hundred pounds in my pocket mm. and basically said I was on my own. And I had to live with my great aunt, the, the one, the daughter of the, of the daughter of the inventor. And um, I stayed in England. I was 16 at the time when I went there and she passed away the following year at 17. I came back home to bereave her death and met my future bride, Joanna. And that's when everything changed for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, Joanna is um, from Ukraine. Yes. You, I've met your wonderful yes. wife um, at your home. Um, and you have invested in, in, in Ukraine. I have. How is that going, particularly with the war? It's difficult. Mm -hmm. It's really painful. What does that mean? My wife's town, which is on the border of Russia. Mm -hmm. So Donetsk is the region yeah. that borders Russia. Her town is called Bakhmut. It's rubble today. There's nothing left. It's a small town. It's something you would never think was strategically mm, important. Mm. But for whatever reason, it's the, it's the front line, the battleground. And it's been her, her grandfather's home has been reduced to rubble. The apartment building her mom spent her last days on has no more facade on both sides of the wall. The building's gone. It's a very sad state of affairs. Um, I got to meet uh, President Zelensky and knew him before he became president. And he's a good man. He's the man for the right moment. Um, I think it's very difficult for him to deal with what he's dealing with. And economically, the country is bleeding badly. So we invested in solar. And the government gave us a, um, a refit, which is a special tariff until 2030. And they really haven't been able to pay. They're paying us about 10% of what we're producing. Mm. What's, what role has your wife played in who you have become? A huge role. You know, she's a softer person. She's the loving, uh, agape love type of person. Uh, and she's taught me about humanity. She's taught me about giving, about true philanthropy, about true charity. Um, I think my life changed because when I met her, I fell in love and I realized she was the purpose of my life. It wasn't to go and make a lot of money. It was seeing this beautiful woman. I was attracted to her completely. It was chemistry. It was love at first sight. She had no interest in me. It took me months to get her attention. In fact, I had to go to the Soviet Union, literally in a white shirt that I'm wearing without this jacket, minus 20 outside in Moscow to realize I'd flown to the wrong city and I had to go to Kiev. All I had was a telephone number she'd given me in her town. And eventually I got there through perseverance. And I guess the ambition and the motivation of getting her as my wife was strong enough to realize that I could drop out of school. I could forget about everything except her. Mm. And that's what motivated me to get into business because I now had to provide for a future bride. I invited her back to Zimbabwe and we started a life together. 
Mm. Wow. What is doing business in Zimbabwe taught you? I mean, uh, um, as I'm talking to you right now, I'm actually amazed that you, you're still here with all um, these challenges that you, you're experiencing. What is, what is doing business in this environment taught you? I think firstly... About, about you. Yeah, about me. Mm. I think firstly, it's to realize that if you feel this is where you have to be, if you really believe this is where you have to be, mm. if you feel that you're going to make a difference in this country, then don't stop. Don't give up. It may be tough. You may face huge obstacles, but none of them are insurmountable. Everything is solvable. If you believe in the country's future and you're here for that reason, then stick here. I think it's also shown me that the people of Zimbabwe are our greatest asset, Trevor. I've said this often. It's not our resources in minerals or agriculture or services or banking. Our biggest resource is the people of Zimbabwe. If you take our people as a, as a, as a monetary value, it's worth trillions of dollars because our intellectual capital is superior. Mm. And I'm not saying it because I'm, I'm boasting. I'm saying it because it's a fact. We have one of the highest literacy rates in Africa. Today, we employ 700 people in our BPO in Joiner Center. We're growing it to 20,000 people. Those skills we are keeping in Zimbabwe. We've had a huge brain drain of our greatest asset leaving Zimbabwe to go live outside. The diaspora of four or five million people should not be there. Mm. They should be in our country, benefiting our country. And we need to get them back. So the way for me of bringing them back is believing in what I'm doing, that it's right. And creating mm. the environment, building these developments so that people will be encouraged to come back. Mm. But you're not spending lots of time here, are you? For the last seven years, my wife had a, Joanna had a, a very bad medical incident seven years ago. She had a deep vein thrombosis mm. in, her, in her leg that was as long as her groin. She was immobilized for a week and um, we had to go out of the country to find the reasons why it happened. We ended up traveling. At that time, the country was not doing very well. It was kind of the end days of, of the last, um, if I can say, regime. Mm. And uh, basically, we said, let's enjoy while we're young the travel. So we ended up traveling 20 or 30 countries a year, 50 cities, and we kept traveling. Mm. And it's got to the end now of traveling, and we now it's time for us to come back home. So mm. this year, I've been back five times. I spent uh, almost the whole of last month and most of this month here. I believe next year we'll be spending more time here. Mm. So, you, so you've got businesses in Ukraine. Where else do you have businesses and what kind of businesses are these? So in the U.S., I have a partner, the one I mentioned, a BPO, so business mm. process outsourcing. We call it more insourcing. Mm -hmm. Remote workers is really what it is. You know, remote, remote working got popularized during COVID. We were doing it three years before that. And I've been remotely working for seven years, so I know what it is to be a remote worker. And I think with the technology available today, with the available uh, resources, it's very easy for us to create jobs for Zimbabweans without them leaving Zimbabwe. So we have an American business that provides mm -hmm. permanent jobs, but the people stay in Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. Which other business do you have? I have a business. Um, it's a small business, but mm -hmm. I have some properties um, you know, in the UK and in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Where are your offices located now? Is it Dubai? Or no, where are you? it's Harari. Harari, Harari. okay. Um, mm. I still, I don't have a private office. Uh, the company office, West Prop, is in Harari in mm. Belgravia. Mm. There's been lots of allegations about you're the biggest landowner. <laughs> How much land does West Prop have? How much land does Ken have? 
So, I mean, I've heard these things and it's, it surprises me sometimes. I, I heard I was the owner of the Highlands Shopping Mall and I'm an owner of some land in Southerton, but it's not true. I mean, the only land we really own is the Borrowdale Flay. Uh, most of Gun Hill we've sold. We don't own that anymore. And Pomona City, which is 270 hectares. So there's, I don't know, maybe 350, 400 hectares of land that we own. We own a little bit of land together with the city of Warren. The biggest piece is Warren Hills. That's 126 hectares. Uh, a little bit of Mukawusi and, um, and of course, in Budzi Market, where we've built the market. That is the functional part of the Sunshine Developments business, where we employ about um, a thousand people in that market. Mm. Any regrets? I regret not researching enough um, partners that I've chosen and not choosing them with the guidance of the spirit. Because I think you go into relationships in good faith, you hope for the best. And when they don't work out, there's acrimony and pain. Mm. And I've had several relationships over my lifetime that I have regretted. And if I was to relive them, I think I would choose differently. Mm. And, and what, when you look at those relationships that have broken down, uh, what responsibility do you I think it always take? takes two to tango. There's never a one-sided conflict. The problem is once you get into a conflict and once the boxing gloves come off, Unfortunately, it's painful. No man is going to just sit back and do nothing. I only knew one. And he's but this no man here. is a Christian. He's this no longer here. A, but this man is a Christian. <laughs> he is. This man is a Christian. Does he box differently? No, I think you have to box fairly. But the, there's the framework of the law in which you have available to protect mm-hmm. yourself. And to not use it, to not stand in the gap and be an example. What are you doing for those who can't? Mm-hmm. So we have to be responsible in what we're given. We have to be good stewards. But we also, where much is given, much is required, Trevor. Mm. And we have to be aware that by doing nothing, we actually become the unfaithful servant. You know, God says, if you're neither hot nor cold, he chews you up and spits you out. So, yes, at times you have to be hot. At times you have to be cold. You have to choose. But don't sit on the fence. Mm. I say to people that the fact that I'm, I'm a Christian doesn't mean that I don't fight. Mm. Is, do you believe in that? I do. Mm. I'm, a, I'm a born fighter. He created mm. me as a warrior. I mean... How can I not fight? It's in my character. Are you still a member of YPO? No, I left. uh, Why? I left. I think the chapter here, I'd outgrown them. They didn't understand me. There was a lot of jealousy. There was a lot of accusations. Again, I was told I'm Robert Mugabe's partner and I've done deals with Robert Mugabe and all these things. So I think um, there's a time for everything. Do you ask yourself, why is it that me, it's me that people seem to be fighting with and walking away from? You know, I'd like to think I'm the only one they're fighting, but I'm not. In reality, I'm one of several that are being fought. Mm. And I believe I'm being fought for greater reasons than myself. Mm. You know, at a deeply spiritual level, the devil knows your future. Mm. He knows who Trevor Nubu will be in the next 10 years. Absolutely. So I'll share with you as we close, we're going to go to books. Uh, My wife and I, I was a member of YPO. And my wife would travel together to Kigali and, and so forth. And my wife says, sweetheart, there's no value fit. Mm. <laughs> Smart lady. There's no fa- value fit. We don't fit into this thing. There's a, there's a group of people that are rich and so forth. But where are the values? Mm. Where are the principles? Mm. I, I fought, I resisted uh, to walk away from YPO, but eventually my wife prevailed and I walked away from YPO. <laughs>
Ken? Do you read books? I do. Let's discuss books. What okay. three books do you have that you recommend to our book-loving reviewers? The greatest book is the Bible. Mm. Let's start there. Read the Bible, reread it. I've read it from front to back several times. I study it every day. I love business books. Um, I'll mention two books, actually. Sure. During, we didn't talk about my Harvard experience. I've, I've been to Harvard Business School. Trip. As a school dropout, God put me well done. into well HBS done. on a three-year well program, done. and well I graduated done. this year. I'm not well alone. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. So one of the things that happened to me at Harvard was um, meeting really smart people, much smarter than me, mm. and learning about business in a way that I never thought of. And by the way, I fully see where you're going in your future because this program is all about the future. Mm. You know, the data, the, the data economy of the future is where the money is. Mm. The fuel economy is over and the energy economy is mm. not even here. Mm. But the data economy is where we're at today. Mm. And as Zimbabweans, we're left behind. We should have so many more incubators, so many more startups with tech companies. But actually, the book that I read is based on a tech company. Google uses it. It's called Measure What Matters mm. by John Dewey. Mm. And my daughter just finished Stanford, actually said to me, Dad, you've got to read this book. We'd gone into COVID. I'd stepped up to the plate as acting CEO. Mike had left. I didn't have a replacement. And I was like, what am I going to do with these people? How am I going to manage them? Mm. So I managed them remotely and I read the book, OKRs, Objective Key Results. Intel developed it. A guy called Andy. Andy. Um, Andy, Andy. Oh, sorry. Yeah, forgotten. <laughs> it's getting old. And, and um, John Dewar got hold of this, what they called the Google Bible. Mm. And he invested in Google and Alphabet with one condition that they followed this program. And the objective key results really sets an annual objective with quarterly key results. Mm. And then we break them into monthly goals, weekly goals, and daily goals. So every day at 8 a.m., I stand up with my executive team, which is six people, and we check into each other on the day's plan. That's one of the disciplines that I don't change. And it's one of the reasons why we are so successful. Mm. And that comes from that book. The other book... Uh, it was a, it's a business book called The Innovator's Dilemma. Mm. It's a Harvard Business School mm. professor, Clayton Christensen. And he, in his latter years, got cancer. And he wrote a book called How You'll Measure Your Life. Mm. So it's a fascinating book. He's a Christian, but he doesn't talk about his faith. He wrote it in a very secular way. He talks more about the philosophy of life. And one of the biggest take-homes from that book I got was for our children, actually. And to those parents uh, out there with young children, Remember this quote, if you want to make your children, it's not what you do for them that makes them, but what you don't do for them. And in my own life, that's what my father did. It wasn't what he did for me that made me, it was what he didn't do for me. So I have a lot to be thankful for, even to that old man. Wow. Ken, not an easy conversation, eh? Tough. But tough we did it. We eh? did it. We did it. And I, I haven't removed my jacket, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> we did, Ken. Thank, um, you, thank you. You know, we, I think the, the, for me, the lesson is we can have uncomfortable conversation, inconvenient conversation, without having to throw insults yes. uh, at each other. So uh, in the first instance, uh, like I told you, there's a bit of grating in me yeah. should we have this conversation i'm sure you did have the of course same thing. i had the same answer to you by yeah, the way in the first time absolutely around. so i'm delighted yeah. we've had this thank you convers- i appreciate conversations it. you've answered the questions as truthfully as you can and i've asked questions as uh, you know blindly or whatever yes. you want to call it mm. uh, and i think uh, viewers out there have learned one or two things thank you so much thank um, you, uh, from the journey in kigali to where we are right now. I wish you the very best. Um, 
Uh, one thing that I, I, I didn't tell you that um, the name that I get called these days is that I've been captured by ED and Zanupia. I believe you're his partner. How I wish. Well, he's your partner. <laughs> How I wish. <laughs> Ken, thank you so thank much. You, Trevor. Allow thank you, Trevor. Allow me, Ken, to turn to our viewers who are all over the world who watch this show every week. Remember, we are out on Mondays on YouTube at 7 a.m. Uh, Central African time. To ensure that you don't miss out on any of those quality conversations, I invite you to click onto the subscribe button. And please like and share as much as possible. We've gone a step further and created a website for you where all our uh, conversations sit. We also have uh, a podcast for your listening pleasure, all that you'll be able to find on our website. We read all your comments. Uh, thank you. Keep them coming in. We also read your suggestions about who should be on the show. Um, thank you so much. Until next time, cheers to you all.